I like to get these kind of things out there up front. Um, I'm not an Atlas fan. I'm not an SMT fan. I'm not a Persona fan, okay? This is definitely an outsider's perspective. Uh, the only reason I'm doing this is because I lifted the ban on Atlas games, so here we are. Uh, obviously, as is not looking at the Royal Edition, at the time of this recording, the Royal Edition does not exist, at least not here in the States, so that wasn't possible. I'm going to be looking at my notes a lot, because there's a lot to remember. This is a very large game, and, well, because I'm going to need some help, especially with names, and please forgive me if I do some mispronunciations here and there. Usually I'm okay with this, but we'll see. So, the game starts very hard in Medias Res. Just, hey, thing! And I'm like, okay, sure, I'm cool. You know, I have, I know who Joker is, I've played Smash Brothers, I got this, I got this. And then they start turning into monsters, and I'm like, okay, so this is in the whatever version. It's the TV world, or the, the tower whose name I can't remember. Okay, sure. But then he busts out the window and gets captured, and then they treat it like it's back in the real world. And, I, and this whole time, and I have to admit, the whole game, I was just sitting here thinking... This is all still in the, the fantasy world, right? Is it? I mean, I can't even tell at this point. Oh yeah, by the way, on the off chance you're new to me, uh, I this is a rumination. I basically can't do this without spoiling the hell out of everything. So FYI. Gameplay-wise, I was moderately impressed with the gameplay of this one. I do like the transitions they keep doing back and forth between the framing device of you sharing the story with Sai by the way. Sai? Say? Oh god, I can't remember. <clears throat> Detective lady. I also... The, I, the, the idea that you can use white damage or take damage, basically, either MP damage or HP damage to attack in order to do actual yellow damage is actually kind of a cool concept. I also like the... Uh, oh, what do they call it? I should just look at my notes. I should just do this the whole time here, so let me just be... It's the... Uh, <laughs> Uh, where is, it? where is it? I swear I wrote it down. Here it is, the knockdown and the hold-up mechanics in order to capture new personas, get items, uh, get money, that sort of thing. It's a nice little addendum uh, bonus thing to encourage you to do something other than just straight up kill the enemy and to pay attention to weaknesses and all that fun stuff. I also like the idea of the once more thing because a lot of games, they'll make something weak to fire damage or whatever, right? And you do fire damage, and so it does more damage. I like the idea of getting the extra round instead. It's, it adds a little bit of extra... I don't know, it's just a little more fun than the typical doing additional bit of damage thing. I also love that the confidants actually have gameplay benefit in this one, rather than simply being... Well, I mean, there's nothing wrong with them just being storytelling after all. To be honest, the main reason we're probably here is for the story, but it is still nice to see that kind of gameplay and story integration. Even Sai... Say? God, I cannot remember how to say her name. And uh, Igor, and, and the connections you get between... The, and, and you even get a connection with frickin' Akechi, for God's sakes. <laughs> that allows you to have uh, gameplay and combat benefit, which is a nice little thing. I also... I really like the gameplay element, I'm trying to think how to phrase this properly, of in the the dating sim side, I don't know what to call it, the simulator side. We have the simulator side and then we have the, the JRPG side. And in the simulator side you have to do certain events and things in order to provoke people, in order to get them to respond, in order to reveal their treasure, which then leads to the opening of the JRPG side. 
it ties the two better a little bit nicer than, frankly, the previous two Persona games, which I've played both of, uh, did, in my opinion. And I also want to say that I feel like there was more to do on the, the, the simulator side of things this time around, which is good, because there should be. I'm reminded of another game I actually played recently, uh, Fire Emblem Three Houses, which is funny considering how many voice actors are in both games, <laughs> at least in the English version. And the idea of there's still plenty of actual gameplay when you're not running around and beating up monsters. I do have to admit one thing, though. I got a little tired of hearing, Persona! 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 I don't know. I was using a guide for about half of this, and I barely remember half the strategies I used, so what the heck do I know? Let's talk about the story. I've heard from many people that the overall theme of this game is rebellion against authority, and I can kind of see why, but this is going to sound weird, but I don't actually think I agree. But I want to build my case to that very gradually, so forgive me for starting all the way at the beginning. First of all, <laughs> there's this really great bit. I, I just have in the corner, I scribbled a little note. This game reminded me why I hated so much of my schooling, everything up to high school, and Everything after high school, I just hated it. Just, just, blah. <laughs> you know? Um, Joker, I'm just going to call him Joker, is that cool? Joker shows up and he's like, hey! And they're all just immediately, oh, God, he's so weird, isn't he? It's no mistaking. He seems polite, but clearly he's all, all the rumor-mongering and whispering and all that garbage that's just, I hate that crap. And, of course, massive click-based, too. What, click, as or, or as in, you know, groups, uh, tribal mentality, right? There's even this line about everyone on the other side of the classroom being worse than those on this side of the classroom. It's like, jeez, people. But you'll notice right off the bat the initial theme is being presented. Everyone's just kind of believing what they hear. After all, that is kind of how that works in real life. So, <clears throat> so the first thing we interact with is Morgana. Now... I'm going to go ahead and say two things really quick about her. Him. Excuse me. Him. I know it's a him. <laughs> I have this really bad habit of always thinking of cats as female. This is true in real life, too. My sister has a male cat, and, I keep, and every now and again I say, Hey, she's him. <laughs> Morgana, <clears throat> the name doesn't help, is also kind of interesting because, well, Morgana was sent as aid, right, by, by Igor, because Igor's awesome. The real Igor, obviously. Spoilers! Told you. I, I, I can't talk about this game without spoiling everything. Igor sends, the real Igor sends Morgana as basically the persona, the manifestation, if you will, of the unconscious hope of humanity. Cool, I like all that. It also makes sense that Yaldabaoth, Yaldabaoth? Yaldabaoth, uh, would try to uh, get in the way of that, which Yaldabaoth also did with the twins, consequently, which didn't used to be twins. I forget their joined name, forgive me. Point being, the thing I was wondering, though, is why the heck does Morgana have such a fixation on treasure? And why is Morgana such a good support unit? And now what's funny is both of these kind of clicked with me over time. First of all, Morgana's a good support unit from a gameplay perspective because it means the first thing you get is something supporting you, the player, before you get a full party. So you are now getting aid and heals. And I mean, come on, it's the same reason you'd want a healer to be your second party member in most JRPGs of this manner. But from a lore perspective, Morgana's there to help make sure that you stay alive, since that's kind of what they're playing at. Logic. Now, 
the treasure fixation, that bothered me at first, especially since the whole treasure thing was kind of like, really? But given what Morgana's purpose is, and given what Joker's purpose is, it kind of makes sense to me that the aide who was specifically sent in order to help us would have a natural fixation with treasure. In short, it's kind of, you know, oh, my precious. It, I, this is just pure theory crafting. I didn't see anything in the game to really uh, answer this. In fact, I didn't see anything in the game that answered why Morgana was interested in treasure at all, so maybe I just missed it. It's a huge game, and there's tons of optional content, which I did basically none of. I had to look up the true ending on YouTube, by the way, because that's not the ending I got. <laughs> uh, although I didn't get the, you know, shot, dead ending, so that's nice. Anyways, so... <laughs> The uh, the treasure fixation, in my opinion, was was designed to try and ensure that Morgana would constantly stay fixated on the general goal, find the treasure, remove it, thus not killing the person, but ensuring that they can be rebuilt. Which, of course, gets down to one of the core themes of the work in general. Uh, we see the two sides being opposed to each other. And what I like about this is these two sides aren't, you can't really describe them with a word, like order and chaos or good and evil. It's more like you have a house. This house is infested with termites. It's broken down in places. There's chunks of it that are just missing. What do you do? Well, you can do an extensive extermination work and then spend the time, work, and effort replacing the beams bit by bit individually to restore it. Or you can burn it down and build something new in its place. And these are the two mentalities that are at core here. Akechi being over here and... Uh, his name was a catchy, right? God dang it. Hang on. Let me just double check something really quick. Uh, a catchy. I'm right. I'm right. Counting myself. A catchy being the burn the house down, rebuild a new one, and Joker being the let's take the harder option of rebuilding it. And what I like about this is neither of these is necessarily wrong from a purely abstract perspective. It is when you start to think about the fact that each one of those wooden beams is a human being in the analogy here that you start to think of why burning the house down might be a bad idea. And I mean, admittedly, it does bear down the villainous plot to be something really bare-bones, and something we've seen Batman villains been trying to do for years, right? I will gas the city, and then Gotham will be pure. Yeah. <clears throat> but early on, we start walking into it, and Kamoshida is the intro villain. Now what I find interesting about him is that he is probably the most despicably disgusting of the characters to me. And that's saying something because, uh, what was his name? Um, Kaneshiro uh, was the other one who was, was the one that just made me go, Hurr. but Kamoshida is just very, very petty, very, very small, and very, very, well, chronic, actually. But what I like most about him is that he is not only completely irrelevant to the overall main plot, they just kind of stumble into him, but the interactions with him are what kind of kickstart the plot by allowing the party to start focusing and getting together and forming the, the Phantom Thieves and kind of developing the direction which the story would go, leading to the conspiracy being aware of them. In short, moving the pieces into position on the board. I also like how he is in almost total contrast to Anna. Anna, of course. Anna, wow. So in my head, I kept saying her name is Anna to help remembering how to pronounce it. But it's On, which is much harder to remember, so please forgive me. 
I told you I was going to screw up these names, on is someone who, without even being prompted, walks up to us and says, look, just, just watch yourself, okay? It's going to be all right. And while she is very hesitant and restrained, she is unquestioningly helpful in the selfless kind of ascent. By contrast, he thinks only of himself and the way he is being perceived by others. The metaphysical and literal abuse that he pushes upon everyone else is, is just kind of disgusting. And naturally, you know, he serves as a wonderful, there's a TV trope term for it that's called hate sink. It's the idea of the, the, the characters being designed to be as hated as much as possible. And I remember the first time, uh, the idea here, thematically speaking, is to help both the characters and the player get a little accustomed to the fact that what they're doing is really questionable, morally speaking. No, seriously, think about what we're doing here. Yes, we steal their hearts to heal them or whatever, but really think about the kind of mental reprogramming that we're doing to these people. Now, I'm still fully on board with it because screw these people. They throw us after some pretty horrible people. And, well, if our options are reprogram them or kill them, I mean, you know, it's the Geth question all over again, isn't it? So I can kind of see why they would want to portray that that way instead of, you know, just straight up killing these people. Except for the uh, later one. What was his name? Uh, Okumura? No. No, yeah, it is Okumura. I liked his music, by the way. Anyways. Now, I'm just going to kind of follow a pattern here, because after Kamoshida, we go after Madarame. Now, Madarame, first question for you. Do you think he actually cared about Yusuke at all? Now, I know what the game says. I'm asking if you actually believe it, if you really think he cared. Because in my opinion, he didn't. Like, at all. Any more than you would care about... a particular step, one specific step on a staircase. That's the level of care that I believe he had involved, especially given what happened to his mother and... Oh, yeah. But, of course, he has uh, tremendous... He's tremendously pretentious. He is very vainglorious. And he tries, uh, unlike uh, Kamoshida, who, if you remember, revealed himself as a villain very early on, ignoring the fact that we met his shadow first. Even when we meet the real him in person, he's like, hey, I'm going to threaten you with this dark tone if you don't do what I say. All right, bye. It's like the first thing we see of him, right? Unlike him, Madarame, excuse me. I'm sorry, I'm trying, guys. Madarame tries to be ah, nice and friendly and affable, and he's actually really, really horrible, which... Well, unlike the previous one, which is in contrast to a playable character, I feel he is most best in contrast to Sojiro. You know, our dad, basically. Our adoptive dad. Especially since, well, our adoptive dad comes across as frankly rude, especially when we first meet him. He is constantly talking down to us and constantly yelling at us and saying, Ah, oh, I'm going to send you to the cops. Don't do anything or I'll send you to the cops. The cops, the cops, the cops, the cops. It's just like, dude, Really? I'm going to circle back to that whole cops injustice thing, by the way, so just keep that in the back of your mind. But Sojiro, for all of his harshness and rudeness and coming across as uncaring, actually gives very much of a damn. He obviously cares a great deal about us, and Futaba. I want to make sure I say that right. I've got guides here for the names. It's, it's... There's so many characters to keep track of. I don't, I'm not even going to mention half of them. There are so many characters in this game. I don't even know where to start. Um... But let's talk about Kaneshiro, because he's 
Wow, he is disgusting. Yeah, I'm going to go ahead and sell you guys into sexual slavery to pay off a debt that I just made up. Now, what I find most interesting about him, other than the fact that his boss fight is admittedly amusing, and that's a good comparison between the previous two, both of which are kind of freaky and gross, is the fact that he is not in contrast to an individual so much as the entire party. See, here's the thing. I mentioned that rebellion against authority theme. Well, that's kind of what he's got going on. Kaneshiro is someone who sees just how horrible and messed up the world is, just like the party does. The difference is the party decides to try and do something about this by using their special powers in order to reach out and make people better, with the desire to overall make things better. The former mentality, you know, rebuilding the house mentality. Uh, Kaneshiro, to continue the house analogy would be the person who would be desperately trying to sell the person who owns that house false, you know, termite traps that don't work and actually infest it with more termites. Why? Because the world is horrible. And only the most horrible people rise to the top of that heap. And that's where he should be. That's where he belongs. I mean, he's not going to be one of the people who stepped on, so he's going to be one of the people who steps on. And you can see the contrast built in there. After Kaneshiro, we have an interesting change in the pattern, uh, as, as per a lot of good RPGs, Paper Mario 2 being one of my favorite examples of this. Futaba is their next person. And it's like, all right, we will now destroy Futaba, who is not actually the villain. She's just cool. You know, she, we, we show up Futaba, and Futaba's like, huh? And we're like, yeah, we're cool. And we end up fighting the... Uh, self-loathing personified as her mother instead of her. Fun fight, by the way. Sphinx. Ballistia. Uh, Ballistia. Fun fight. And as a result, this kind of just kind of completely shifts the overall dynamic of the game because the next one is Akumura? I think that's how that's pronounced. God, I'm just screwing all these up. Who is, of course, ambition at all costs. No matter what it takes, we have to win. Now, if you're paying attention, this is actually very similar to what Sai has. Her, you know, I must have justice. I will do anything it takes to get to the top, which is the same general concept, just expressed in a different matter. Since in his case, well, in his case, it's a little bit of a concept I like to talk about often. The tangible versus the intangible. He cares about winning, the goal, the tangible. His daughter, Haru, she cares about intangible things like pleasing her father or being a good daughter or taking care of her friends or, you know, little things like morals and ethics and that sort of a thing. So she, of course, cares more about intangible things, and thus the father and daughter actually form a nice contrast to each other. This is funny because when we then get to Sai and uh, Makoto, they seem to form a parallel to each other, but excuse me, an opposite to each other. But in truth, as we go through that, we find out they're more in parallel to each other. The two of them are actually pretty much of the same general mindset. It's just they've been going about it in different ways. And as mentioned, size I'm going to kick myself in pronouncing it wrong because I keep saying her damn name. The detective lady's heart has been distorted. Now, that's interesting because they mention that all these people's hearts are being distorted. And there's an inference of external influence. And given that the game is rigged, I could see why they would say that. But I didn't see anything that specifically stated that there was an actual external force doing this. This is just kind of naturally how things go. And this is a Persona game, that is to say an Atlas game. So it would make sense to me that in this 
let's just call it what it is, twisted reality that it's entirely possible for someone to go from, you know, I don't like eating my vegetables, to, I'd rather kill everyone than eat my vegetables, because you know, it gets a little distended, right? That being said, I do find it interesting how this leads both naturally and not into Shido. <laughs> I have the least to say about Shido, because he's the bad guy. No, seriously, he's there to be a type of war villain. There's no real characterization, there's no real motivation. You know what's the most telling thing about him? His shadow basically looks just like him. In the real world, he wears yellow glasses, for God's sakes. And it says a lot about the severe level of self-assured, vainglorious hypocrisy that he has, that he really does think he should be the one to rule on high as sultan. I also would say that he definitely, I've talked about the difference between a ruler who wants to rule and a ruler who wants the benefits of rule. I would say Shido is definitely a ruler who wants the benefits of rule. For all of his preaching, he's a terrible leader and a terrible person. And then he's done and we move on. Now, I wrote down a graph on my sheet here to remind myself of something. It goes like this. It's mostly a line, and every now and again there's a spike, and then there's another spike. Now, I point that out because this is how I felt most of the nature of the game was being presented. If you zoom the camera out, narratively speaking, that most of, I mean, there's literally mementos, but most of the people, most of the, the NPCs, not the main NPCs, but most of the city is just a big gray morass of sludge. And then every now and again you see a spike of something really horrible. And that's it. And those are the spikes, and the spikes are the major characters we tend to go after for the majority of the game. And the sludge just being this sort of I mean, whatever, right? Look, I gotta get to work later, so I'm, I'm not gonna bother. At the beginning of the game, I said I was building to this point, at the beginning of the game, the main character, uh, obviously this, there's some you know, manipulation going on here, but the main character gets thrown in jail and incarcerated and dealt with for the horrible, horrible crime of defending a woman from a molester, which is Shido, actually. Benefits of role. And people are just like, eh, I mean, I'm not going to get involved with that. There's a nice bit. Uh, where was it? Uh, who said it? I don't remember who said it. It was much earlier in the game. Someone, uh, I think it was actually uh, Sojiro, who says, "Why did you, this is what you deserve for getting involved in the affairs of adults. I don't know why you thought you could do that. There's just this wonderfully horrifying sense of apathy that just permeates every, every pore of this game. And I don't mean that in a bad way. I mean in a deliberate narrative kind of a way, not in a design kind of a way. And thus we see sloth is... Uh, here it is. I actually wrote the quote. That's what you get for sticking your nose in, in the affairs of adults. I actually wrote the quote down. It's so messed up in its own way. Because we've been seeing this the whole time. And this is the nature of how exactly Yaldabaoth gets to be the way he is. In fact, it's implied, although not stated outright, since he is the treasure of humanity, that he's just kind of popped into existence abstractly by the collective will of the people. Not Now, he's like, oh, I shall rule on high Sultan because he's evil. And it's made very clear that even though he claims to be representing order, 
no, no, this is a very clear false god. I should rule because I'm better than you kind of a situation. So this is someone who wants to rule, uh, but is incredibly evil. The best thing I could say about his mentality, if I was to try to argue his argument, is that he's looking at the macroscopic perspective instead of the microscopic. But even that doesn't hold still, because what he does cuts a huge swath of pain and grief through large masses of people. I mean, never mind the entire game that he's playing to begin with, but I'm getting off topic. Um, the idea here being that instead of being this great god or deity or whatever, I think, and I guess this isn't saying much, that he is literally the manifestation of that apathy. The, one of the really messed up things about corporate America, I know this doesn't sound like a segue, hear me out, is that it is designed, it is deliberately designed to remove accountability and responsibility. No, seriously, that is literally the point of a corporation in the traditional sense of the word. So that if there's horrible debts on the corporation or if there's legal issues with the corporation or whatever, that's on the corporation, not any individual. And due to the nature of the crisscrossing, like, it's like trying to blame, I know this is going to sound weird, it's like trying to blame a single thread for the flaws of a piece of cloth, right? That's the idea of a corporation, deliberately making a situation where no one's to blame. No one has to really make the hard choices. No one really has to think about anything. Everyone can just kind of do what they're supposed to do and live their lives. Now, this is severe cynicism seeping out of my pores here. Obviously, this is you know, not 100% true in all cases. But the general idea, this is what I was reminded of constantly, this ju just massive apathy, this complete lack of caring, this keep your head down, don't pay attention, just do your job mentality is present everywhere in this game. I've only mentioned like three examples of it. That I stopped listing them after three, admittedly, because I was like, you know what, this is going to be a constant thing, isn't it? It also makes Yaldabaoth an interesting contrast to Izanami. Now, I'm not going to spoil that because that's an unrelated game, but all I just want to say is Yaldabaoth is very overt and he is directly influencing the game, whereas she was so behind the scenes you didn't even see her till the end. He is, I must do things my way, it's the only way, I, because I am the correct. Whereas she, or it if you suppose, is was a little bit more on the actually well-meaning, you know, if, if extreme kind of a way. Now what I really like about this, I don't know if this is true all the time, because I know some of the scenes change rather drastically based on whose, uh, I almost said support conversations, this isn't Fire Emblem, whose uh, confidants you raise and to what level. But for me it was Yuki. It was the first one. Now that actually appealed to me, not only because he's the O'Brien of the, the confidants, but because of the fact that he himself kind of found himself shifting a little bit. We didn't even need to defeat his shadow or anything. He realized what was going on. I was like, okay. He restored himself. Now that's important. Because at the end, the reason we're able to defeat Yaldabaoth is because he is nothing more than a collective a manifestation of the collective unconsciousness of humanity, which, thanks to the pebble, Yuki, was able to start sliding in a different direction. If you'll forgive me for stretching my analogy in like three different ways here. Something about that really appeals to me. The value of the individual in a game that's almost entirely about the aggregate, and especially from the perspective of the villain. 
This also, of course, leads to a really great scene where the meter is like, do you, uh, what is it, do you believe uh, in the existence of, uh, 100%, you know, and then you go kick ass. And then we see a very long ending. Oh, I don't want to admit something, by the way. I didn't see the Igor twist at all. just want to go ahead and admit that. I actually asked a friend of mine about that, who's played these games, and he said he can't believe I didn't catch it, and we talked about it for a bit. I guess if I was actually invested in Persona 3 or 4, or the voice acting thereof, I probably would have noticed a lot earlier. Apparently it's really obvious, and there's like dozens and dozens of foreshadowing about it. I didn't catch any of it, because I'm a moron. But I have two final notes here. See, this order thing, again, it's not order. Yaldabaoth doesn't actually, Yaldabaoth doesn't actually represent order. Yaldabaoth represents the macroscopic perspective. The idea that, so earlier we saw the, the, you know, rebuild, restore the house, burn the house down. Both of these were just a game underneath the idea that I should be on top. That the macroscopic's all that, all that matters. But even that view is, is perceived to be flawed. Or if I was to state this simply, every perspective in this game is, is portrayed as flawed, which is actually something I rather like. But if you really think about it, this actually means that in this game, the final enemy, the big, final, big, bad, final boss, final, final, is humanity. The concept, the intangible connections between an aggregate mass. Something about that really appeals to me, I'll admit. One final thing, and then I, I don't think I have anything else. So, who's, who's he playing the game with? Multiple references are made to the fact that this is a game. And the idea is, you know, pit the two pieces against each other, manipulate both, so no matter what happens, I can just take over and rule on High Sultan, right? Okay, that all makes sense. Who's he playing the game against? He mentions Igor right at the end, but Igor's off, imprisoned or whatever. I mention this because there are several very vague references throughout the game that just gave me the very strong impression that there is something else out there, like beyond the scope of this relatively small-scale event, and that those things are the ones who were the ones who initiated the game. If I was to describe this in Greek terms, it would feel like that's a bad example. Whatever, I'll just keep using the Greek thing. It would feel like what we're doing was we're fighting Ares the entire game. That's a bad example, but you know what I mean. And Zeus is the one who said, Ares, go and prove yourself. See if your, your point is really valid by actually engaging in this interaction. In short, it feels like there should be a being above Yalda. Yaldi. We'll call him Yaldi from now on. But there's nothing overt about that, or at least nothing that I caught. It's entirely possible I missed it. I did... Try to get through this game as fast as possible. 44 hours, oh my god. <sighs> That's all I got, guys. I hope you've enjoyed the thoughts of an outsider. I'll see you next time.